You know, no one is putting on your tombstone was COO of X company. I mean, really, who cares? (laughs) I think it's all about how you made people feel, how you showed up to your friends and to your family, and what kind of person you were over the course of your life. What's most important is the impact you have on others. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I have heard that you are a bit particular about grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's because my parents are immigrants and they were taught English as a language. And so they raised me to have appropriate English more because they thought that's what you were supposed to do. It turns out no one really cares, but yes. <laughs> do you have like a grammar jar at the kitchen table or anything? No, but I do teach my kids about things like the conditional tense and they just look at me like, mommy, they don't teach that in school anymore because no one cares. <laughs> they don't? I don't know, but my fifth grader has never been taught the conditional. So And so you took that from your mom? Yes. So if I were a dog and said if I was a dog, yeah, that comes up a lot. We have a puppy. <laughs> they imagine themselves being a puppy often. So your mother would correct you? A hundred percent. When you were at the dinner table? Just in general, she, both my parents are from Argentina and they were taught English as a second language. And so they were taught all the grammatical rules of English. And so... She would, when I wrote things for school, she would correct me. When I spoke, she would correct me and lodged in my psyche. And then, of course, you promise yourself you're never going to be your parent. And then you find yourself doing exactly what your parents did. And do you think part of that and maybe part of her rationale was to assimilate and language was a key part of that? For sure, She had an accent and my father had an accent. And so I think it was very important as an immigrant to demonstrate that you, at least for them, knew the language. I'm the same thing. My parents came from Iran. Mm -hmm. Were you ever insecure or embarrassed that, you know, your parents had an accent, that they were different than everybody else? just different habits, routines, and rituals that all of your friends that you met. (laughs) Did that ever come up for you? Oh, all the time. All the time. I don't think I was ever embarrassed more. I was this bridge where I had to explain, no, my friends don't know that they can't call at 3 p.m. on a Sunday because you're sleeping la siesta. That is not a thing here. You can't get mad at someone if they call the landline at 3 p.m. on a Sunday. And they came from Argentina when? Both of them came in the late 60s. And you were born here? Mm -hmm. I was born here. Whereabouts? Yeah. I was born in Connecticut, so a little town, the nearest hospital to the town I grew up in. Tell me if this is wrong, but I heard that when you were growing up, there wasn't many people playing hockey, (laughs) except for you. Yeah, so I grew up in this tiny little town of 3,000 people. And the reason we were there was my father is a neurobiologist, a scientist. And he had a laboratory in Manhattan. And then he had a field research center in this little town where he had birds. He studied birds and basically the brains of birds. And so he had made that decision because it was a scientist salary. So do you choose to raise your family in Manhattan on a scientist salary? Or actually you would never be in Manhattan. You'd be like way, 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 way. Or do you choose to raise your family in this small town? And so I grew up in this very small town of 3000 people called Millbrook, New York. And it is where there are lots of fields and ponds, as it turns out. And when the ponds freeze, 
kind of all there is to do is play ice hockey. So that is how I grew up playing ice hockey because my brother, who was six years older, brought me onto the pond and needed someone to play stick and puck with. And so that was how I started when I was five. And you fell in love with it. Yeah, I really did. I don't know if you've ever experienced something called black ice. In Tahoe. Okay. I've driven on black ice. Oh, well, imagine cutting a skate blade on black ice. There's something just very zen about it. Yeah, it's pretty magical. And were you playing growing up in yeah. Millbrook? Yeah. Millbrook, Millbrook is uh-huh. that it? Uh-huh, Millbrook. I did. Again, it was a very small town, so tryouts didn't exist. If you were of the age bracket and you wanted to play the sport. They were just looking for players. Yeah, for sure. I think the difference was that I was the only girl who wanted to play. So I did think they had a moment. They checked the rule books. I don't think there was an official rule, so they kind of had to let me play. And I played with those boys since when I was six something called mites and then you become squirts and then you become peewees. I don't know who made up these names. They're all adorable names. Uh, Yeah. Amazing. They don't sound intimidating at all, but we were really (laughs) intimidating, I promise. And so I played with them till I was 13. So seven years of playing with boys. Just um, the boys. You and the boys. Just boys. Just me and the boys. And yeah, I would change in the car because the locker room was boys putting on cups and everything you needed to put on as a boy. And then I would lace up when the boys were done changing. They'd call me in. They'd be like, okay, Olivia, come on in. And then the coach would be like prepping us for the game and we'd all be lacing up our skates. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was hard, but I loved it. You still remember that pretty vividly. Oh, so vividly. Again, the way I was introduced to it was from my brother just treating me like appear in the sense of, if I can do this, you can do this, which is very empowering. And that translated into, of course, I can play ice hockey with these boys. And my teammates were wonderful. I mean, they really were wonderful. And I think I appreciate them even more in retrospect. Like as a 12-year-old, I don't think I fully grokked it. But the other players on the ice were not so happy to see me. Opposing team. Oh, for sure. And the parents on the other team definitely didn't want me on the ice. There was something almost insulting that their boys would be playing against a girl. And so I got a lot of jeering and... At 13? Oh, for sure. And you just hear it when you came off the ice, like, what is that girl doing playing ice hockey? And I had, you know, have long blonde hair, so it would stick out the back. I mean, it was pretty obvious that I was a girl and I had Olivia across my jersey and the back because not a bomb didn't fit. <laughs> so they had to go to Bunch with my of dead giveaways. Name. Yeah. You didn't want to Mulan it right. where you put your, you know, in Mulan, they put her hair up and oh, then she right. becomes a boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I could have done that, but you know, I was also really proud and totally. I was really good. I mean, I don't mean to say that. Were you better than most of the boys? I mean, I tried really hard. You had to earn your way to be there. And to be fair, girls do mature faster than boys at that age. So I was taller than most of the boys. I'm still quite tall now, but now all the boys have caught up. And I wasn't afraid to be physical. So I was definitely checking boys. Were they checking you? Oh, for sure. I mean, we were playing boys ice hockey. And so all fair game? Full fair game. Yeah. I didn't mind it. I mean, I really, that's what I signed up for. Super cool. Yeah. And you went on to play in college? I did. At Harvard? Yeah. You played at Harvard? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. And were you good there? Oh, well, I mean, (laughs) I was a freshman on the varsity team. So, you know, I was the worst. No, I mean, in the sense that you're definitely on the bench. (laughs) Yeah, but not all freshmen are making varsity, right? Well, yeah, in that case, in that sense, yes. But, you know, it's very humbling when you get out there and these women have been playing ice hockey in Canada forever and they really were inspiring and it was wonderful. I mean, I played. I was. I think I was probably third line out, but I definitely loved that experience. And then my coach, who was intense and really good, this woman named Katie Stone, went on to be the coach of the Olympic team that won the gold. Wow. Yeah. She's shaped so many women's lives. Yes. As immigrant parents, mm-hmm. how proud were they that, <laughs> that their little Olivia was going to Harvard? <laughs> oh, in that sense... You know, my father actually didn't want me to go to Harvard. 
to be honest. He really cared about education and he cared about how you think and how you think for yourself, actually. And it's probably not surprising. He's a scientist. And I think the genesis of many of the discoveries that scientists make are when they question the status quo. And that way of thinking is very much how I was raised. So he would actually drop me off at school every morning and he'd say, learn a lot, but don't believe a word. He would say it in Spanish, right? But he would really push me to make sure that I was forming my own thoughts and that I was discovering learning and the joy of learning almost from a first principles perspective. And he was concerned that Harvard would have these huge classes with professors. Indoctrinate you. Well, no, actually, he didn't think the teaching would be as good. And in many senses, he was right, because the professors taught these classes of a thousand people. And then the TAs or the teacher's assistants were PhD students. And they didn't know the material at the depth that the professor would know the material. And so I do think in some regards, smaller colleges where it is the professor who teaches you not only for the lecture, but also for the class itself, when you're discussing the book you read or you're discussing the article or whatever it may be, I think the teaching is probably better. I mean, I loved my experience at Harvard and I feel like I got exposure to so many amazing people, but that educational experience, I think very deeply about even for my kids. If your kids wanted to go to Harvard, would you tell them no? Would you try and dissuade them? It's more that I would really want to make sure, first of all, I wouldn't get into Harvard again today. Don't sell <laughs> yourself. So just to be this clear. Is, this is coming from the person that then ultimately went to GSB for her MBA. So I don't know I about know, all that. Things have changed. So, you know, putting that aside, if I found myself in the situation of having to talk to my kids about this, you know, I really respect and adore my kids, but I think it is a different experience out there. I would really want them to think about what is the fit for them. So much of life is believing in yourself. And if you lose that, then your ability to accomplish and overcome is way harder. And so I think about it very deeply for my kids because what I care most about is that they retain self-confidence. And a lot of that has to do with overcoming adversity and overcoming difficult situations. But you also don't want to put them in an absurd position where they just don't have a chance at all. And understanding how one learns and how one actually benefits from their environment is an important element to the places you put yourself or the schools you choose to go to. How old are they? 12 and 10. 12 and 10. So let's say... I've got some time. got some time. But let's say when that time comes... (laughs) Hmm. And they say, mom, I think I want to go start a company mm-hmm. or I think I want to go join a startup, be yeah. like employee five yeah, and not go to college. Not go to college. In lieu of college. Mm. What do you do? Well, uh, it's hard for you, right? Because on the one hand, you really value education. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a bunch of ways to get education. For sure. I would have to take each situation into account. I think... There are good ways to spend those four years and there are kind of toss away ways. And the reason I pause is, especially as a woman, I do think that certain structural, societal accepted, quote unquote, certifications do help and are necessary. So I always felt that if I work my... Can you, I swear? You can swear. That, that is not a swear jar. That is not a swear jar. That is a very material jar. You know, if I work my ass off and I prove myself, then I have a college degree to show for it. I have institutions that are known as rigorous and hard to excel at. And then in my case, I chose business school. And I always felt like that enabled me to pass through certain basic filters that society has set up. I do think that it's changed, right? This was 20 years ago. And so I do hope that it's changed, but especially as a woman in certain fields in particular, I still think that 
you are better off having that to say, look, I've proven myself. I've done this work. It's very hard for people to decode, okay, what was a startup you were at? What was the role you had? Was it a good startup? Were those leaders effective, right? And we all know the success rates, right? There are a lot of people out there doing amazing things, but it's very hard to be a successful startup. So I would probably suggest my kids go to college first. And then they have the rest of their lives to do amazing things and have incredible experiences. I actually really appreciate how thoughtful you were in that answer. Was your dad disappointed that you went into like the business track rather no, than... No, no. He wasn't. So there's something you should know about scientists, which is their analytical brain makes them fascinated with other data sets. And the data sets that he loved was the, the stock market. And so he did exactly what you're not supposed to do, which he would bet on individual stocks. <laughs> you know, and like four years into my econ at college, I kept on reminding him, like, there's this thing called a diversified portfolio and you're just better, better off as a scientist who has a full time job not doing this <laughs> to actually go invest in a hedge fund or a diversified asset class. No, he loved business. He loved business. And the only sadness I had is that he discouraged me from science and he did it with all good intentions, but he thought it was lonely. It could be a very lonely career and it had high level of serendipity. And I think he was being humble, honestly, because he had made a number of great discoveries and had is a member of the Academy of Sciences. And he felt like he knew so many scientists that were out there doing as good work, but didn't happen upon whatever it may be. And so in that sense, he didn't totally feel like it was a meritocracy, but he viewed business much more so. And when you say serendipity, you mean that he attributed most of his success to luck. And that was a function of the career path that he chose. Well, he just felt like his lived experience in science was that he knew so many fantastic scientists and they were studying fascinating things and important and interesting things. And sometimes their research would deliver something that society cared deeply about, but sometimes it didn't. But that didn't necessarily reflect the rigor of the science they were doing, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And so in that sense, he felt like, look, you could go pour your whole life into science and it might not get you as far. I mean, he's an immigrant, right? So he's taking a very immigrant lens to this. And I don't mean to categorize all immigrants as the same, but that was very much his belief was choose something where you work really, really hard and there's a clear relationship between the two. I grew up at the table with immigrant scientists, my okay. mom and stepdad. Wow. I always heard about science because they were both scientists. So all I would hear them talk about was science and I couldn't be more. I was so over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that my mother was very much in for all of it too. She just didn't happen to get a PhD like my father did, but she was right there doing all that research next to him and actually doing field research. And so they did always talk about science in the latest article in Science Magazine. I was fascinated by it. It was nice to have both, frankly. And your brother? My brother was an engineer and he studied engineering and he loved it. Yeah. Did he ever come to games? Oh, all the time. All the time, in fact. When I was in high school and he was in college, he would travel to go see my games. And then when I was in college, he would also come see my games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really special. <laughs> yeah. When was the last time you saw him? Well, my brother, um, it's funny you frame it that way. My brother passed away when I was 23 and he was 29. And that was May 16th. 2001 he had been in an accident and so I had to identify him and I decided I should do it and not my parents but the last time I saw him in terms of the person I knew was the holidays and we were in Argentina yeah at the time and Uruguay we had gone to visit family in Argentina and then gone over to see my aunt and all my cousins on that side are in Uruguay and you were in Stanford at that point or were you, no, had you graduated? No, I was actually an analyst at McKinsey and I 
was working at the office. I mean, kind of always at the office at that time. And I think it was nine o'clock at night. It was pitch black out because I remember standing at my desk and my mother called to tell me my brother had died. I'm so sorry. Yeah. At that point, what's the most surprising thing that changed for you? For the first time, and this wasn't planned or intentional or thought out, but I literally just walked out of the building. I mean, I just left my computer. I don't even know if I wrote an email to someone. I mean, I literally just walked out of the building and disappeared for four months because I had to go with my parents out to California where he was. I was in New York City at the time and kind of do all the stuff that no one talks about and rightfully so because it's not fun, but all the stuff of dealing with someone who's passed away in an accident and retrieving all of the, you know, the horrible things. But then we also had to move him, uh, not him, but he, we had to move out of his apartment and put all his stuff and oh. take across country and all of that. So the first very immediate thing was I always had this incredible work ethic where I could basically tackle anything, <laughs> you know, any assignment at school, any, game and ice hockey, I could convince myself to get through most things. But this was the first time I had ever just walked out of something. I felt no responsibility to work whatsoever, which I was such a highly accountable and responsible person. And this was like, it was irrelevant, right? And I, by the way, I think that's correct <laughs> in that situation. I think it is irrelevant. And what you and your family go through are not anything that I think benefits from being at work from, at least everyone makes their own decision. For me, it, it was that. The one thing I would say changed is I had an experience where I released something entirely that I was so dedicated to because, frankly, my priorities had changed. Of course, McKinsey was incredibly understanding about that, and I don't think they were upset or anything that I had left, but I didn't ask permission. I definitely just walked out. You were on the East Coast in New York mm. at the time. Yeah. Doing iBanking at McKinsey? No, I was an analyst, so okay. I was doing various projects. I think at that time I was actually doing a private equity rotation. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean? Oh, uh, we would help, like we would partner with leading private equity firms and help them do strategic assessments of assets they were considering purchasing or spinning out or selling to another entity. Were you traveling a lot? I was traveling a lot. Yeah. I've heard you were traveling more than a lot. <laughs> I don't know if this was at this point or not, but I heard you were going to Taiwan quite frequently. Oh, yeah. That was when I was out in California and I was serving a number of clients in Asia. Yeah, I was a frequent flyer on Ava Airlines, mm -hmm, which is a fantastic airline. It has stars on the ceiling when you go to sleep. It's lovely. Wow. Shout yeah. out. Maybe we get a sponsorship That's after right. this. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, look. We just started talking and I kind of just lost the entire script on how I normally start these things. And I guess there is no normal, but I generally would read my guest backgrounds back to them. I was just so enthralled that I couldn't really stop talking with you. So maybe can I run through a few things on your resume here that's in front of me? And then I'd love to just revisit some questions that I've been meaning to ask you. Is that okay? That's great. Okay. Harvard, Stanford, McKinsey, three years at McKinsey. Then you had another six year run that ultimately ended in the last four years of you being a partner at McKinsey. Then you went to Google, where you spent six years, ultimately concluding in you being the VP of SMB and go-to-market operations for their cloud. Was Thomas there, TK? Was he yeah. there? Yeah, uh-huh, 100%. Past guest of the show, also Great. like one of the most popular episodes we've ever done, surprisingly, yeah. or not surprisingly, I don't know, but he was, couldn't have been a better dude. Dropbox, you went to Dropbox to be the COO, spent a year there. Then you went to Notion and you spent a year there? How do I characterize I'm an this? advisor there now. I was the CRO and then I stepped into an advisor role. Okay. There is an article that you wrote in 2014 or you co-wrote called Grow Fast or Die Slow. I loved it. Maybe could you tell the audience some of the takeaways? Sure. So this was after we had experienced the dot-com boom and bust of the late 1990s, early 2000s. 
and had then, of course, gone through another cycle in 2008, 2009. And there was this intuition that growth was paramount and you heard it spoken of, (laughs) but there wasn't a robust data analysis or there hadn't been, to our knowledge, a robust data analysis of this. And so what myself and colleagues at McKinsey decided to do was actually take a look at the data and say, what are the patterns that we're seeing in these tech companies and what are some of the takeaways? And what we found was growth was very much valued by the markets. So that's not surprising. But this was actually not yet a given where growth was valued far more than profits. And now when we're seeing different macro turns, I think we'll be having this conversation again. But for many of these waves of companies, what you saw was that what was very successful from a valuation perspective was to achieve high growth and then solve for profitability later. And even though the market's correcting itself now, I would say that you still see that strategy taken by many firms, right? There are still many, many, many public tech companies that are not yet profitable, that are still continuing to grow, and of course now need to be mindful and thoughtful about expenses, but that growth really did benefit them. So what we saw was that these companies were valued 5 to 7x as a result of that growth, but not only the growth, but consistent growth. So what you saw was that there was this rarefied air of companies that grew over 60% and achieved 100 million in ARR. And then there was only 10% of those companies that continued on that 60% growth trajectory and made it all the way to a billion. I mean, very few companies, right? And you're starting out with tens of thousands of companies, and then very few companies reach 100 million in ARR, and then even fewer to the billion. And then I think it was only like 20 or so companies actually made it as self-standing companies to the $5 billion mark. It was that consecutive stages of growth that really delivered these companies with incredible value creation and, frankly, appreciation by investors. And 60% was a magic number? 60% growth? Well, you know, we were working with these enormous data sets. And so it was where we saw the Pareto of, okay, it seems like this is more or less where you can draw a line and see a delineation in the valuations. But, you know, I don't think you'd be docked if it were 54%. (laughs) And how many companies do you remember were growing 60% at the time at 100 million of error or above? When we wrote this in 2014. When you wrote this in 2014. <laughs> Guessing it. I mean, in tech, right? We were just looking in the software space specifically. Definitely not more than 100. What do you think that number is today? I talk to a lot of companies because I help out founders when I have a chance and just talk to teams and help them think through go-to-market and so I have this giant spreadsheet of, of you, you know, every company that I've ever talked to, what their run rate is and what their growth rate is. It is still very rare to be talking to a company that's over 60% growth after 100 million. Notion is one of those companies. It was one of the reasons why I was so excited and still so excited to be partnered with them. I could list them off, but I won't because I think I'd be divulging information that's not public. But, you know, it definitely fits on my hands and feet how many of those companies there are. It's very few. It's rarefied air. If you were revisiting that article today, is there anything you'd change? Knowing what you know about the past eight to 10 years. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, the data was the data. Right. So it's not like we intuited things. We were literally just doing the drudge work of working through all these data and frankly, getting the data set together for the first time ever and then running the analysis and really trying to cut it in a way where we could see the insights out of it. But I would say that there does come a time and place where profitability does matter. And we did point this out in the article. 
right? That after you come up and over that billion mark, all of a sudden it does start to turn to profitability, right? Where the valuations then look at more, is this a sustainable business? And there, I think people probably spent less time, (laughs) right? They were more enamored with the beginning part of the article. And so that was often where the discussion was held and less about, okay, but there does come a time and place where that needs to be addressed. And I do think that's still true today. I was having a conversation with a founder the other day, actually, and I was asking him a question about, do the unit economics work at scale? And he responded, well, I'm not yet thinking about that. I'm still trying to make the product itself kind of work and make sure there's product market fit. I think that is the right answer when you're building something really for the first time. You first have to have a problem that you're solving, innovate, create something that people find useful. But at some point, you have to ask the question (laughs) at scale, do these unit economics work? Because it is actually the case that some products can be designed or frankly redesigned earlier so that at scale they work. And I think sometimes what happens is companies or teams push off that tech debt till too late. And so then as they go to address the question, wait a minute, how do we do this profitably? It's really quite a ways down the road. And sometimes they have to re-architect the product entirely in order to get some of those economics to work. It's weird to hear now the things that you wrote about and growth and how that triumphs all because we take that for granted. Yeah. But this was like early pioneering work on that. Yeah, they, there was a Silicon Valley episode. I don't know if you remember the show that was called Grow Fast or Die Slow. And by the way, back to your grammar question, uh-huh. it was really told to me that we would need to use this title, Grow Fast or Die Slow, but it's actually should be Grow Fast or Die Slowly. grow quickly or die slowly because it's an adverb modifying a verb. Right. So to this day, I still wince a little bit when I say the title of the article because grammatically it's incorrect. Yeah. When I found out that you are a bit of a stickler for grammar, (laughs) I immediately became so nervous and insecure because I have horrific grammar. I'm not even sure if that's even grammatically correct. It really doesn't matter in today's day and age, but it does make me laugh. Yeah. No, on the growth topic, I would say that I still am a firm believer in growth. That I do think But is that, that a hot take? Who's not a firm believer in growth? Oh. I think there are two camps actually. I definitely have met and spoken with founders that are kind of playing it slowly and letting it roll out. And first you have to get the product right. But especially in a world where some of these things take long lead times and the growth part of it actually takes planning and resourcing and good planning in terms of market entry, et cetera, that there sometimes tends to be a stutter step on the push towards growth. And I would rather fail fast, but still keep pushing for growth rather than wait for everything to be perfect and then enter or try to hit that next growth trajectory. I think that makes sense, but it also is stage dependent, right? Meaning if you're not a Dropbox or a Notion where you maybe are a series B or C company that is not cash flow positive and is not bringing in the revenue to sustain the business organically and you're in a funding environment like this, the stutter step could be to buy yourself a little bit of time to extend your runway in order to give yourself a chance to get to the 100 million. Otherwise, the business could literally die on the vine. It's for a bit sure. of a risk mit- mitigation Oh, for thing. sure. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be intense thoughtfulness of runway and when there would need to be another round raised. And frankly, in this environment, whether it would be a down round and if people are okay with that, right? So there needs to be a lot of thoughtfulness that goes into that. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you first have to be thoughtful about your P&L, your balance sheet, et cetera. And then if you have a certain amount of runway, then 
leaning into it will, I believe, behoove you more than waiting and resting. (laughs) It's all nuanced, right? I'm not saying go out and hire a thousand people in a down market. But I do think that continuing to make forward steps towards expansion or investing in that new product now so that it's going to be ready in 24 months or entering new markets so that you can start to pilot and understand what the needs of the market are. I think all of that continues to be very important as these startups really play what ends up being a market share gain. Why would you leave McKinsey? I cannot for the life of me. Your career path is so impressive because... I'm a glutton for punishment. (laughs) I mean, you said it, not me. But You said it, not me. But each move continues to get more, quote unquote, risky and more difficult by most metrics as you go deeper in your career, which is generally the opposite of what I would expect. Meaning at these big consulting firms, six months, you're up or out. So you did that, you ground through that process for seven years, longer, 11 years. Yeah. You probably got like 15 promotions in that time. Well, I mean, I think just up or out is kind of a <laughs> you know what I mean. gauntlet in itself. And you make partner. Had you had kids yet? I had just had my first kid. There's definitely a story there. Yes. What's the story? <laughs> well, I was working because I really felt like I was doing what I needed to in terms of uh, demonstrating impact with the companies I was working with and helping them deliver their business goals. And I felt like I was kind of contributing on the thought leadership side in the way that was really important, that article being one of them. And so there's this process at McKinsey where you get put up for partner. And so I was put up for partner and I was quite young. How old were you? I was 35 when I was put up for partner the first time. Let's see, it was 2009 when I was put up for partner the first time. And that's probably about the fastest you can get partner, isn't it? (laughs) But I didn't make it. Mm. So I was put up and I remember I put in all my papers the week before I had my daughter, Ashley. And, you know, you had to fill all these things out and you have sponsors and all of that. You're not just raising your hand randomly and saying, can I be partner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they say, you have a shot. We, we want to put you up. So, OK, so you go through this whole process. And then I came home with Ashley and had been home maybe a week. So I had a newborn on my lap and the head of the firm of McKinsey calls me and says, hey, Olivia, just keep on doing what you're doing. And we think we can get you through in six months. <laughs> They understood that I, when I was going to be back in the saddle, I'd be back in the saddle, but I, I wasn't going to do it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't going to make that trade off. And I respected McKinsey for it. And I think they respected me to make that call as well. But then I guess I go back to my point, which I continue to be mind blown about. Like your story is only adding fuel to my fire, which is you then get the partner gig. And you do four years of it. This is the gig. Yeah, but you start feeling like, at least I felt, wow, this is more of the same. And I'm not pushing myself. Like this isn't, the learning curve is not as steep as I want it to be. And frankly, I do think that other folks who stay at McKinsey have a steep learning curve because they're learning things that they want to learn, right? In the sense of how to run the firm, how to drive strategy overall for McKinsey, somehow, sometimes even how to be the CFO of McKinsey or, you know, whatever it may be. But for me, what I wanted to do was go operate in a company that made things and delivered products, right? And so for the part of McKinsey that I was interested in, the learning curve was not as steep as I had experienced it from the first 11 years. And so, yeah, I kind of made this decision that I was going to push myself out of the nest and go operate. So you spend six years at Google, which is the next move that you make. Mm -hmm. And you decide, okay, this Google thing's probably too cushy for me too. (laughs) 
No, that was different, to be honest. I wasn't actively looking for a job. We were in the throes of building out Google Cloud. This was like an attacker, and we were up against AWS and Azure. And we basically were creating a company where there really hadn't been a fully mandated company. And Diane Green, who's an amazing person to work with, had been on the Alphabet board and had stepped into the CEO role of Google Cloud and really created a team to go after the enterprise cloud market. And so that was an amazing, amazing experience. And it was fun because people didn't think we had the right to be there. And so it was very much like, okay, convince us that Google can sell into enterprise, convince us that you have the technology that enterprise companies need and understand what it takes to support and deliver to enterprises. And so that was very much a build. Six years of the build and you go to Dropbox. Yeah. Yeah. COO of Dropbox. Mm Mm-hmm. Includes marketing, sales, people, and talent teams. Like, had you done any of those things besides sales? <laughs> <laughs> bottoms up, go to market motion. Had you done any of those things? Well, bottoms up, yes, in the sense that G Suite definitely has a freemium model. Right, and yeah. G Suite was at the time when you were when you joined included in cloud, and still is. Yeah, yeah. So it's part of that stack. So to answer your question. I had done all of those functions as a partner at McKinsey from uh, working with heads of all of those functions at Fortune 500 companies. So I had very much experienced the importance of those functions, how those functions needed to work together, the manner in which the functions would be run well, and also what the failure modes were. And honestly, a lot of that has to do with just the leaders that are part of the team, right? And there were just a fantastic group of leaders at Dropbox heading up each of those functions. And so it was an honor to work with that team. I have nothing but positive thoughts about my time there. I think it was obviously a first because, you know, first time global pandemic, operating in a global pandemic. So there were a lot of decisions we were making on behalf of the company and trying to think about what our role in the broader tech ecosystem was. And so that was challenging in a good way as well. You know, we were treading on new ground as a leadership team. Then you find Notion. Notion finds you, you find Notion, you meet. This company, for those listening, ripping, ripping company. It is like... Last valuation was in October of 21. It was $10 billion. Company boasts more than 30 million users today. Has raised over $340 million from Sequoia and Co2 and Index. I guess maybe the obvious question to start is you were full-time at Notion, and now you're an advisor mm-hmm. at Notion. Probably worth clarifying. Oh, why the switch? Yeah, and just yeah. like what, and maybe the different versions of those capacities. Oh, very different, very different. So I was speaking with David Schneider at Co2 about some other company, and he said, Hey, will you actually spend some time with Ivan and Akshay over at Notion? And so I said, Sure. And we ended up chatting quite a bit. And then I wasn't actually applying for a job. I was just (laughs) trying to be helpful. So they sent me a data set and I basically said, okay, well, this is what I would do from a go-to-market perspective and was pretty unfiltered because again, it wasn't like a job situation. It was more like, you know, here you go, right? But I think that's honestly the best foundation for a relationship. So after a couple conversations, then they suggested that maybe I would come over and head up the go-to-market side. And I really respected Ivan's take on this, which is, hey, if you're responsible for revenue, we're going to call you the CRO, right? That was the scope. And it was sales, marketing, customer success, support, go-to-market partnerships, and strategy and operations for the go-to-market teams. I mean, those teams are just awesome teams at Notion. They're just fantastic. They're just building and at the same time, having an incredibly high bar for talent. And so it is this amazing culture where you know that every, what we call Notino, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is just this high caliber person with excellent values and 
really want to be part of this team. I love Notion. I love the product is amazing. The team over there is amazing. And Ivan and Simon, who are the original co-founders, and then Akshay on the business side have just done an incredible job really being thoughtful about entering markets, how to monetize, how to drive community. And those growth rates that I saw when I was speaking to them were not an accident. Can I ask you about these markets, this Notion market? Yeah. Because I feel like I'm talking to the queen of markets right now, and she's got such a nice macro perspective on all these things. I know eight companies in this space that all have over a billion dollar valuations. <laughs> yes. Well, one just got acquired for 20 billion. So yeah. Figma. Yeah. You put Figma in this space? Well, I mean, in general. It's... I'd say it's a, in the collaboration space. Yes. Yeah. But I'm saying even more specifically. So I think they're very similar in their go to market motions. Mm-hmm. I think they're very similar in the way that they have cultivated community as a superpower mm-hmm. within their go to market motions. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying even more specifically in what category would you describe Notion as? Whatever (laughs) that category is around. The all-in-one space. The all-in-one space. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe that's a nice way of saying organization and notes. Just like most simplistically. That's how I use it. There's like eight companies in there. How big is this market? Because I actually think while valuations might be pretty big, revenues are also pretty big. We're in Coda in this market. There's a lot of players in this. Is this just bigger than anybody thought? Is this market just that big? I do think this market is everyone who is an information worker. Do you think there's going to be more 60% growers at 100 million of ARR in this market than any other market you've ever seen? Well, I can't pretend to know all markets, (laughs) but I do think that even if you just take As a proxy, if you take Microsoft and the amount of monthly unique users that it has, right, and then you take G Suite, right, this is markets I knew well, and these are classically people who are using collaboration tools in an editor-type mode. If you look at those numbers, I think it ends up being hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, right? Because you know Microsoft is about 80% of the market and they publish those numbers, Mm -hmm. right? And then you know that Google's like the other 20%, right? So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of users. The number that's been shared for Notion is that they have over 20 million users, right? So if you imagine a world where these tools stack on top of each other, right? At the current instance, no one's replacing G Suite or Microsoft with a Notion or a Coda. What they're saying is, actually, this editor tool is just better and nicer and easier to use. And I'm willing to pay for this editor tool on top of what I would pay for these suites because I need the calendar and I need the email functionality of those suites anyway, right? But I do think then because of their all-in-one nature that they do take share from other players, right? So they are not all being stacked on top of each other, mm-hmm. right? But there is some share game across these various players. To go back to your question of, do I think there's going to be a ton of players at over 60% growth, over 100 million. I think history tells us that that's rare. (laughs) That is rare. But I do think the market's big enough to sustain it for sure. And especially in a hybrid world where people are really trying to still figure out, okay, how do we navigate this? If you look at the key carabouts of CEOs, employees is still within the top 10, right? So if you look about the key carabouts of CEOs and you see what are the things that they put top of the list, I think their employees is number four or number five. And a lot of what that translates into is how do you keep your employees engaged? How do you make sure that they're feeling like they're doing their best work when they're at your company? And Often people find the ease of which their applications, the way in which they're able to do the work that they're doing makes a big difference in how they feel at work. 
going back to the go-to-market motions, you have a very interesting and good perspective, in my opinion, on the evolution of how these, I think you, you draw three distinct periods of go-to-markets. Could you talk about that? Sure. So I think we've seen various waves of go-to-market approaches. The first wave was what you would classically call top-down, right? So you develop a piece of software, you are pretty convinced that businesses should use it, and so you knock on the door of the CIO and you say, hey, I think you should use this software. Here is the value proposition to you as the CIO, you may or may not mention the benefit to the employees. <laughs> For the most part, it's mostly to you, the CIO, and to you, the company. So you saw that first wave of products, and I think we know those companies. Those are kind of like the Microsofts of the world, at least in its first instantiation, Oracles, et cetera. You know, there are these huge software platforms. And so we saw that. And also that coincides with pre-SaaS. So it was a, here is a software solution. We are going to sell it to you. We are going to then send people over to your offices to (laughs) implement it and roll it out. And by the way, it comes in a box, right? And then you see the second wave. And by the way, I lived that. I mean, that was not so long ago, right? I was working with those companies. And then you saw the second wave where it's, oh, wow, there's this thing called SaaS. It's pay by the drink. And by the way, because of the nature of SaaS, you can actually just pilot it yourself in many cases, right? You can just go onto someone's website and start using this software. And how amazing is that? And so that second wave was more of this bottoms up approach, right? Which is if you could create an amazing product that users love to use and made their lives easier in the function that they were doing, they would start using it and they would swipe your corporate credit card, whether you kind of knew it or not, and they would start using it. And some of these had freemium models. Some of them had 14-day trial models. But at the end of the day, people were swiping corporate credit cards, right? And paying for this stuff because this was what they preferred to use to get their job done. And this is what people would canonically call PLG product-led? Or do you think no? Yeah, I mean, it was the product itself that was drawing people in. And maybe this is because of my go-to-market tendencies, but usually it is a lot of people still coming together to make that solution great. So you have to build a great product, but in one way or another, you're probably marketing it there's someone in the marketing team working on it. There's probably people on the support team (laughs) supporting customers using it. So even if you don't have an account executive that's flying on a plane and going having a steak dinner with someone, there are a lot of functions that are coming in and supporting that product. So yes, it's the product and engineering team, but I would also point out that there are a lot of other teams that are coming in to make that product and enjoyable experience. I would say that was bottoms up. And then the third wave is this more coincides now with the realm of social, the realm of people having the ability to talk directly to each other through and outside of company lines. And this is what I would call more of a community-led approach. And I do think that Notion is amazing at this and very much put community first in terms of the product feedback loop, in terms of the advocacy within countries that it was entering into, in terms of just really understanding who are the people that value using this product and how can we empower them to really almost become an extension of Notion. But most importantly, how can we empower them to do the thing that they want to do? Right. So maybe they're building a business and they want to sell Notion templates. Great. Let's let them take the money for the work that they've done. But let's create a marketplace or a template gallery where they can sell those templates. Or maybe they're a consultant who likes to help people set up their Notion instance or set up their Notion workflow. And so, okay, great. Then let's create an easy way for people to find those consultants, but let's not take a cut of that. So it was very much fostering that community, but also not trying to control that community and trying to have very honest conversations with that community. So really taking the criticism and listening. How many companies today are actually doing this 
in a world-class way? Very few, very few. And like how bleeding edge is this? I still feel like a lot of people are retrofitting bottoms up and you're talking about a whole nother thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the one thing I would say, and this is from seeing it close up at Notion and really kind of the genius. And honestly, it's not like someone woke up one day and said, I am going to be a community-led product. It was more that just the way in which they are. They genuinely cared about the community. They genuinely wanted to hear from those members of the community what they could do better. I think where this could go wrong (laughs) is if a company does it after the fact. And it's like, oh, someone told me that I should really lean into community but they're quite far on their journey and they really haven't demonstrated any desire to engage with community up until then. And then it just doesn't seem genuine. And part of the anchoring and the foundation of having a community that actually cares about the product and feels like they're even an extension of the company is from a true genuine belief that they're not like a to-do on someone's to-do list in terms of growing a company. It has to be in your DNA. I agree with you. Weren't two of the first 50 hires at Notion community people? Camille Ricketts was the first marketing leader and she had come from first round and she's an amazing, amazing leader. And she hired a community manager early on who then hired a couple other community managers. And that realization that this is actually a full-time job, right? This is not just like putting up a couple blog posts on the weekend, I think was one of those pivotal decisions. And then of course, Ivan and Akshay and Simon were part of all of that, right? Reflected that this was in the DNA, as you're saying. Is it true that you screen for grit at Notion? (laughs) Well, I think that we all know that there are ups and downs in companies and there are ups and downs in work that you're trying to get done at a company. And so we do like to understand what someone's lived experience has been in terms of having a difficult situation and dealing with it. The answer does not have to be that they went to the moon, right? But it it needs to be something that's real adversity and where someone demonstrated humility and understanding what had gone wrong and what they could do better and then applying it. And so you would ask the question, something along the lines of, tell me about a time where something went wrong and how you overcame that challenge? I can't tell you our interview questions. (laughs) It was worth a shot. It was worth a shot. But something like that. Dang. Okay. Well, you co-authored a piece with Ariana about micro steps. I just came up on that. Can you tell me about that? Why'd you do that? Do you remember it? Yeah, I think this was an important time where we were also trying to get the word out about Dropbox and how Dropbox thinks about hybrid work and the transition to a world where you're dealing with a new way of getting work done and work-life balance and all of that. And that was a perfect match, obviously. Ariana has thought a lot about these topics and publishes a lot on these topics. And so that was a nice partnership. I was delighted to see that. That gave me the warm and fuzzies. So I've spoken to people on your team and I asked them a lot of questions about you. And one of the superpowers that I was told you're flinching in anticipation. (laughs) (laughs) You are very skillful in accountability, but also empathy. And I think those two things, generally speaking, are very hard to do in tandem. And I dug into that point a little bit more to really understand what he meant. And he told me that after he had his first son, you would send monthly gifts as a reminder that you care. Is that true? Yeah, I do think that this is one of the things that is most important is that the people who show up at work have a life. (laughs) It's such an obvious point. But there is just a reality to the members of your team who are showing up every day and working and 
challenging themselves and collaborating with their peers, all of that, they obviously have other things going on in their life. And there are certain milestones in one's life that really, when you look back on your life, you will name as like the 10 most important things that ever happened to you. And I think having a respect for those milestones and understanding what it's like to go through those milestones, because they're often quite difficult or challenging and new, is really important. And I remember that people did that for me when I had my children, that I got gifts from all over the world. And it was this nice recognition of, okay, we're going 100 miles an hour, but you just had a child, (laughs) right? And like, this will be part of you for the rest of your life now. And part of how we work together and part of how you show up and part of the concerns that you have outside of work and all of that. So I do care deeply about each of my leaders on a team. And the accountability part and empathy part, it's hard for me. I am high empathy, but I'm also high accountability. And so sometimes I angst a little bit in the background, but I do try to strike that doing the right thing for the company while also taking someone on their career journey and their life journey. What are you angst about? Before I need to have a tough conversation or tap someone in one direction or another, I do try to put myself in their situation and think, okay, how would I best receive something And how would I be able to hear it? But then I have to ask myself, well, how is this person different from me? Because they're not, you know, I don't work with all of people like me and that's a good thing, right? And so then try to flex and think through, okay, what are actually their priorities? What do they need to hear? All of that. You know, you just have to make the time to do that. And there's a little bit of worrying in there for sure. If I didn't care, it would be far easier (laughs) If I go back to the 10 most important milestones that you were just describing, yeah, how many of those, as you look back, are career-related? Oh, very few. I would say none. None? Yeah. No one is putting on your tombstone was COO of X company. I mean, really, who cares? <laughs> I think it's all about how you made people feel, how you showed up to your friends and to your family, and what kind of person you were. And no one's perfect, obviously, and everyone is working on different things. And I make a ton of mistakes, and I try to promise myself that I'll never make the same mistake twice. But yeah, of course, over the course of your life, what's most important is the impact you have on others. Yeah, so I mean, I think of the milestones of my life more about the person I became as a result of those things. I ask only because... Maybe this is just me, but what I get the most angst about are the things that I perceive to be big milestones in my life. Generally speaking, those are work-related. Right before I get to my tombstone and someone asks me, what do you regret? I guarantee you the answer is going to be that I misidentified or misassigned all of these career-related milestones as in my top 10. I don't think I'm alone there. That's why I ask you. I think this is something that we all grapple with. And I think this is also potentially an American topic. (laughs) I do think in the United States, more so than in other places, and it comes from a very good place, we tend to identify achievement with titles and all of that, and not to make a gross generalization, but I think it's more for those folks who have lived in the United States or grown up in the United States and then go live in Europe. It's a little more about how do you lead your life balance-wise, like what do you do on the weekends, actually? (laughs) But I do think about this topic a lot because at the end of the day, and especially as someone who thinks about raising my children, is what is it that makes people happy and makes for a healthy society? You can accomplish great things. And I think it's great that you have important milestones and you're challenging yourself to achieve those. And of course, I have done that myself in terms of putting really hard hurdles in front of myself. But 
at the end of the day, what matters will be the peace that you have with yourself and not what other people think. And I think that's easy to say, but very hard to convince yourself of at times or oneself of. And so how do we all sit and ask ourselves the question of, am I doing the thing that I find enjoyment from and where I feel like I'm doing the right thing for my loved ones and my family and society? And and everyone finds their paths in a different way. Great place to leave it. If you're not going to tell me the interview questions about grit, then what does the word grit mean to you? (laughs) I associate grit with having a purpose. I don't think just doing stuff that's hard just because it's hard is what I associate with grit. What I think about grit is you're striving and you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to achieve a new lived experience or to achieve impact and that that is worthwhile. I couldn't agree more. So if you take Angela Duxworth's definition, which is passion plus perseverance over a sustained period of time, when people think of grit, they immediately go to perseverance. I think it's wrong. There's no such thing as perseverance without really giving a shit and really caring about what you're doing. So I agree. Anyway, good place to wrap it. Olivia, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. <laughs>